Okay, we are live with Alexander McCurris in London and the great Robert Barnes. Mr. Barnes, where can people find you? They can find all of our content at the second best locals page right behind the Duran.locals.com at VivaBarnesLaw.locals.com. You know, we, we have debates, conversations, uh, all the things you get, Duran.locals.com. You can also get it at VivaBarnesLaw.locals.com. So, and now if you want to troll, you just have to pay a bit of a toll. Uh, but other than that, you can even troll as long as you're reasonably decent about it. The, uh, but yeah, the uh, that's where they can get all of the content uh, from both me and uh, Viva Fry. Awesome. Awesome. I will have a link for that Locals channel as a pinned comment. I also have it right now in the description box as well. Uh, gentlemen, let's get started. We have a lot to talk about. A quick hello to everyone that is watching us on Locals, on <clears throat> Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and YouTube, and a big shout out to our amazing moderators. Thank you very much to all our moderators. Mm. Valias, Zarael, Gab, and who else? Reckless Abandon, <clears throat> a full house of moderators. Thank mm. you, everybody. I hope I didn't miss anybody. So, uh, Robert, Alexander, before we get started on the political and geopolitical topics. We do have a super chat, which would like both of your gentlemen's recommendations on history books and geopolitical books that you recommend that especially can be shared with the next generation. Well, I, I think there's like books that are useful, yeah. like templates of power. So yeah. I always recommend John le Carre's novels. You know, if you mm. want to understand what's going on with Big Pharma in Africa, Constant Gardner is a nice little introduction. If you want to understand rendition, if you want to understand, I mean, he hasn't always been the best on understanding new Russia, but putting that aside, the Russia house is great. All the Cold War era stuff was great. His indictment of, of spies as a group of people, starting with, uh, the uh, you know, coming in from the cold. Uh, all of that is brilliant. So a lot of the, either the films or the books really good I mean, my favorite happens to be russia house as a movie but yeah it's john connery so hard not to like him the uh and he's got a cool flat in portugal the uh but the in the film the uh but so so john luke Curry for sure american author i i call him often a temp you know the best you know as faulkner said sometimes the best fact is found in fiction the uh uh you know elroy describes the american deep state very well in his america and his uh American tabloid trilogy of books, American tabloid, the cold 6,000. Uh, and uh, I'm blanking on the third one, but all of them excellent uh, describing how the shadow world works in terms of, a, you, you could have pre understood Russia gate. If you had read both Jean, John le Carre and James Elroy before anybody in the institutional media in the West understood it for the fake phony fraud that it was, <coughs> the uh, Trump would have benefited from reading some of it. Uh, the, so th those I, I think are good. You know, you have, if you want a sort of independent left historical perspective, people like Noam Chomsky is written very voluminously. Uh, if you want some old American, almost independent populist perspective, questioning skeptical of empire, people like William Appleman Williams, uh, you can't go wrong. Let's, you know, looking at a lot of what Ron Paul has written in contemporary times because it has broader and bigger application. But uh, the but my favorite are really the great fiction writers because they often describe greater truth than anybody else can get access to. 
If you, I, I mean, that's an astonishing list, um, Robert. And I just want, I, I'm just going to add a few names. I mean, if you want to understand the absurdity and comic opera quality of a lot of what you see in the British deep state and civil service, I would recommend Graham Greene's Our Man in Havana, actually, yeah. which, uh, I mean, gets, the, you know, the pomposity, the stupidity, the self-importance, and the sheer bungling incompetence of the whole thing. And it's, there's not a bad film, but the book is an awful lot better, actually. Now, I'm, I'm Greek, and, you know, anybody who is interested in geopolitics and is Greek, well, this is a really heavy, deep read, but Thucydides' book on the Peloponnesian War, still the best, I think, about great power politics and the way they work. Um, a lot of the books, again, I, I'm talking now, you know, somebody who studied history. A.J.P. Taylor wrote very well about historical topics. Um, he, he wrote lots about uh, well, one of his famous books, The Struggle for Mastery in Europe, for example, which explains an awful lot about European history and how um, it evolved and how it developed and in the way in which the United States got sucked into it because it, it, the US wanted to stay out and it eventually got drawn in and the way in which European power politics work. And I recently been reading, and I think they're really remarkable books, actually, a whole series of books written by a man called David Gantz, who has been who wrote about the Second World War and the Eastern Front, and he did this did this on behalf of the Pentagon, oddly enough. He brought a huge team together, and they looked at the way in which this what really happened on the Eastern Front, and he goes a lot into the politics and the mechanics of politics at that time. But he also has completely revolutionized understanding of that particular war. And it's important because it frames so much of the military conflicts of today. Now, there's lots and lots of books on politics and foreign policy. Um, if you want some very good books about, um, specifically on Italy, but uh, the British write well about Italy, by the way. They've got a long tradition of writing books on Italy. But Italy during the Second World War, that sounds limited, but in fact, Italy was important. So it relates to other things. So there's uh, a book called The Brutal Friendship by a man called Deakin, which is all about the relationship. It, it charts the foreign policy relationship between Germany and Italy between 1943 and 1945. It is an absolutely brilliant diplomatic history, and it teaches you how diplomatic history should be written and understood. He was, again, an intelligence agent, so he put all this together. And there's another brilliant book, Who Defends Rome, which is about the political crisis in Italy in 1943, connected with the fall of Mussolini. And again, it sounds limited, but it shows how great power politics work, how uh, uh, regime change works, because what happened in, in Rome in 1943 was to some extent a regime change. And again, how the Americans got sucked in, because, it, you know, in a good cause, by the way, let's never dispute this, but again, you see all of these various people who are trying to use the Americans to advance their own interests in Europe at that particular time. So there's just a few names.
Uh, right. Yeah, it, Graham Green, definitely. The, uh, the, uh, the those are all excellent recommendations. People often ask me about populist books. One from a sort of global historical populist perspective, recently written, "Fixing the System" by Adrian Kazminsky. Uh, for America, the populist moment by Lawrence Goodwin, describing the sort of the origin of the term and American terminology that then became globally adopted. Uh, the from a uh, independent economic realist perspective or populist perspective of the American constitution itself. You can't go wrong reading a lot of what Charles Beard wrote, economic interpretation of the constitution and the like. And if you want more contemporary takes, almost anything written by Kevin Phillips, including a book that might be, have a misleading title. It's called the emerging Republican majority published in 1968. However, what the book really is, is an entire history of American politics and why every little tiny constituency, like the difference between German Lutherans from Bavaria versus German Lutherans from a different part of the country, uh, in, say, eastern Missouri versus western Ohio, uh, it's in Kevin Phillips' uh, book, The Emerging Republican Majority. I often call it a Bible of understanding American politics. So, And last but not least, a little book behind me is uh, The Door Rebellion from Rhode Island. If you're interested in just a little history. Uh, but it turns out I got a little Alexander McCourse uh, legacy in my family history. It turns out like everybody in here, you know, a lot of them end up arrested for treason. They try to hang, hang a bunch of them. But it's a grandfather. Uh, it's like that grandfather on that side, grandfather on the other side, grandfather on the other side. It's like, all right. So yeah, it's, it's in the blood to cause a little trouble. <laughs> all right. Fantastic. Thank you to Dirty Dangles for that question. That was a great open. And let's uh, let's not talk geopolitics and politics in the United States. Alexander, mm. Robert, let's get the well, show going. Well, I think we, we, we will need to talk about these because uh, Robert may not know this, but there is a specter haunting Europe at the moment. Um, and that specter is the possibility of Donald Trump returning to the White House in November. The media here and the political class are absolutely terrified about this, or at least they're telling us that they are. And every single day I see article after article churning out and talking about this. In Britain, you know, you couldn't imagine how much scaremongering there is about this particular issue. And the reason for that is two things have happened. The British, not just the British, the entire European political class were convinced that over the primaries, Donald Trump would somehow crash and burn. I don't know why they thought that, but they did. And the two primaries we've had, um, Iowa and New Hampshire, have come as a shock. Perhaps, and this may surprise you, Iowa, more a, a bigger shock here in Britain than New Hampshire. Um, I think they just couldn't get their minds round the sheer size of Trump's majority there. And the other thing that's shocking them and really scaring them is the fact that these cases, which we've discussed so many times, firstly, politically, they are strengthening him, which is, by the way, exactly what you said they would do, Robert. I remember you saying that all of these people, many of them who had not been particularly supportive of Donald Trump, who in fact, been many cases opposed to him, uh, people at the lower end of the demographics, suddenly when they see all these cases being brought against them, they, they understand that, they relate to that, they understand that this is the big guys picking on someone and that's what happens to them and to people they know. And that 
has influenced them to side with Trump. So again, the Europeans completely didn't get that. And they're also starting to worry that the cases are unraveling one after another. They're looking less and less convincing all the time. And I think the combination of all of this is making Europeans worry about the way in which the election is going. Because, of course, they're looking at the other side of the picture. They're looking at the man they would probably optimally still want to see as president, who incredibly is Joe Biden. And they're sensing that the entire administration is losing control. It's losing control of foreign policy. It's losing control of domestic policy. It is on the back foot on every conceivable issue. The war in Ukraine is uh, failing. And I think nobody know, now any longer doubts that. They're concerned about the way in which the United States is handling the Middle East crisis. They're horrified by the failures of the Red Sea. And they are starting finally to understand what I think many Americans figured out long ago, which is that Joe Biden is not fit for purpose. He is not up to the job. In fact, he's dangerous and reckless and unreliable. So altogether, a sense of nausea and fear in Europe. It's like they, you know, they, they suddenly sense that, you know, they got vertigo ahead of them. Because also, despite all the bragging and all the talk in Europe, um, you know, we don't need the Americans, we can do it all ourselves. They've done their inventories, they've done the bean counting, they realize suddenly that they got no industrial base, and that without the Americans, they are nothing at all. So tell us, Robert, are these European fears, are they well founded? Are we indeed now heading for an election? in which Donald Trump is beginning to look like a real force. And, you know, is he indeed putting these cases behind him? Why? Maybe we can start with this. Why were the results in Iowa and New Hampshire as strong as they were? I mean, in Iowa, perhaps people, I think that's more understandable. But many people said New Hampshire, lots of independents and Democrats will vote against Trump. And it didn't make any difference. So why why is this C movement behind Donald Trump? And is this a tide that is going to continue? Yeah. So, I mean, for the last year, as as we've discussed, I've been you know recommending people uh, in the political betting markets in Europe and around mm. the world uh, bet on Trump. Uh, because there was, uh, you could see it in the underlying foundation of American politics and where things were currently, uh, which is that the Republican Party has become the home to the uh, populist wing of, of American politics. The Democratic Party, uh, people can read a, a left-leaning Democratic pollster, the liberal patriot uh, Roy Texera, comes from a uh, uh, labor background. I knew him from his AFL-CIO days. And he's been documented. He goes, the 2024 election is the people versus the Brahmins. And he goes, the Brahmins are the Democrats. Uh, that You know, the running on as the party of, by, and for the professional managerial class that is incre increasingly discredited in uh, United States political power, whether it's at the State Department, Treasury Department, Health Department, 
doesn't matter which department it's in. They've, they've been abominable failures. The, so the populist environment has only grown with, and the demand for populist options has only increased uh, since Trump's loss. That's issue one. Issue two is the Republican Party has been taken over by this uh, in terms of its voter base, not its representative base, not its donor base, not its media base, but its voter base by a overwhelming populist majority. And that was about 20 years ago. If you did Iowa in 1980, when, you know, Poppy Bush did well there, uh, it's very different than the Iowa Republican electorate today. Uh, it, it you know, got taken over originally by evangelicals and religious conservatives, but church-going folks. Uh, but then under Trump, it got in, in massive influx of old-school populist voters, uh, working-class voters, a lot of them historically labor Democratic voters in certain parts of the state. And Trump, I mean, as the UAW president recently said, yeah, I just endorsed Biden. Most of my members are not voting for him. Um, so this is the reality, is that Trump won over working class middle America in mass. And then, as we noted, the second factor, and there was no com competition on the popular side, not from the Democrats. I mean, there could have been with Robert Kennedy, but they ran him out of the primary. So he's having to run as an independent. Uh, and there's no competition within the Republican process for a populist alternative. And you look at someone like Vivek, uh, you know, who's really kind of a smart entrepreneurial businessman who doesn't have any populist history until a year ago. It's he, he just read the tea leaves. He was the best marketer. He was like, oh, this is what people want. OK, this is what I'm going to run on. Um, and I, I think he's adopted some of these positions sincerely. I don't fully trust him. Uh, I mean, he's biopharma, so I always put in a little asterisk by those guys. But the but that fact revealed all you had to do was read the room and you sound like Vivek. And that's a populist Trumpish voice. And yet he was the only one doing it. You know, the old establishment wing of the Republican Party, the, uh, the donors that got scammed and given all this money for a completely foolish endeavor of challenging Trump. So uh, just misread the room from the beginning, because their room isn't the Republican Party anymore. Their room isn't America anymore, uh, if it ever was. You know, it's not the Hamptons. It's not the D.C., Georgetown mm -hmm. folks having uh, dinner with Woodward and whatnot. The other factors, as we noted from the get-go, they were turning a billionaire TV celebrity who went from being a sort of cartoonish oligarchic figure to millennials, as an example, uh, and other groups in America to the ultimate uh, beaten down, attacked, assaulted underdog. Uh, the, you know, they really made Donald Trump the everyman in ways that he never, you know, the guy with the, his own plane and the gold plated uh, toilets was now the guy that the entire machine was trying to break. And that made him relatable in ways he had never been before. And for his core audience, they saw it for what it was, an attempt to weaponize the legal system of the United States to take out their political opposition. And it was enraging them. And they were going to you know, walk through whatever brutal winter like it was at the coldest caucus day in the history of Iowa. Didn't matter. People that normally never voted were by golly going to vote uh, it, despite the weather, despite the elements because they understood what was happening to Trump uh, was deeply wrong and offensive to them. And they understood what it was and no amount of media lies or judicial lies could change that. The, uh, and then it expanded his broader reach into constituencies that otherwise were indifferent to him. 
the and then the the and so that's about half of the story is the story of American populism and its reaction to the attempts to politically take out Trump. The other half is the complete failure of the Biden administration on every front. Um, we have a border that is an open sieve that looks like you know all the problems that Europe had when there was massive waves of immigration going through. And we're having the same thing at the worst levels. And when this when the states try to do anything about it, the Biden administration tries to prohibit the states from even enforcing immigration law and is letting them get overrun. You know, when Elon Musk and Robert Kennedy are siding with the governor of Texas, that gives you an idea for how anybody with any observational skill can realize this is not a manageable phenomenon the, uh, and can see the Soros-style agenda for what it is to undermine uh, the nationalism, to undermine America, undermine national identity, uh, and, and damage communities. And the communities that bear the brunt of illegal immigration are overwhelmingly working-class communities. Uh, often themselves Latino or African-American uh, in terms of lost employment opportunities, burden on the tax base, infrastructure, housing, schools, health care, you name it, the, uh, and crime uh, that comes with it. The, and then economically, utter failure of the Biden administration. And they still live in denial. You know, Paul Krugman just thinks working class people don't know how to read their own bank accounts. That, you know, the, the you know, people are paying more for less than they than they did under Trump, their economic prospects are weaker. All the, I mean, here's one of the best facts out there and how the immigration relates to everything. There has been no net job gains for native-born Americans under Biden. None. They have all gone to uh, immigrants. You know that 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 doesn't spell well in Middle America. Uh, then you add in both the inflationary spike and the fact that wages did not keep up with the inflationary spike for the essential items of ordinary everyday people combined with the the you know the stimulus politics ultimately either what you couldn't do stimmies for forever and as those faded as the student loan debts had to get repaid again uh, as all uh, all of those burdens we've seen record setting rates and uh, increases in credit care, in credit costs uh, and default rates across a broad spectrum of items whether it's auto loans credit cards or increasingly in the housing market. Housing's utterly unaffordable, most unaffordable it's ever been in American history. Ordinary you know, young families cannot afford to purchase due to both the combination of the spike in rates and the spike in prices. So the ordinary person can't pay their, you know, on average, when you add in their food costs, the student loans coming back in, their, in, their uh, increasing housing costs, uh, increasing transportation costs, and decreasing wages, uh, they're getting hammered. And they've been upset now for a year. And, and the Biden administration's answers tell them, you're just, you're doing fine. And they're like, these people are delusional. The, and then you have, as you note, the foreign policy debacles that are so bad, even Joy Reid is like, not another effing war. You know, she got caught on a hot mic. But, you know, the, I mean, Biden has turned out to be the worst of the bunch. Mm. I mean, he's more like Lyndon Johnson than Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton or even Barack Obama. Uh, in terms of, hey, let's see if we can get a war here, war here. I mean, the favorite meme where you're sweating between different choices. And now it's like he's got four or five war choices. Okay, war with China, war with Iran, war in Yemen, war with Russia, uh, war with Texas. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is not good. Uh, and the ordinary working class community can see it. So it's a combination of like Trump right now has the best favorability ratings he has ever had since entering politics in 2012.
So he had it's, higher favorables way back before he was in politics. But since 2012, he's been underwater and often as low as you know negative 20 in terms of personal likability. Trump always took the trade off. I want to, I want the brand identity as strong and tough at the sacrifice of people liking me personally or thinking they do. But right now that number is even. Biden is 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 the one with the worst numbers. Worst number worst numbers than Trump ever had. Worst numbers than Jimmy Carter had in in terms of competency and capability. And 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 their solution is maybe we get we we put more US troops at more places. It's like when these they see US troops died in some Jordan and you know your average american is like we have troops in jordan what uh, what uh you know, the and now we're going to some place called yemen what's yemen where hooties who are the hooties you know these are not conversations you want ordinary everyday people to have and you definitely don't want families having them about why their loved one is dead so the uh oh well you know we needed this little base in this little random place in the world for, for what again De- defending what uh so and then, of course, there's been the utter debacle of Ukraine. Everything about it has been a debacle. None of it, you know, the those of us who are saying uh, all the way along, the U.S. government is lying to you. The West is lying to you about what is happening. Now all being proven true. We identified from day one this was one big, massive money laundering operation. Well, now they're having to indict random generals who are pocketing all the cash. The uh, uh, So it's all being exposed, and it's being exposed at scale. So you have a degree of both incompetency and disconnectedness that a lot of millennials uh, only had sort of the hagiographic view of Obama, but that was their only definition of Democrats. I mean, they didn't even really know Clinton much. Um, they didn't. They never knew the Lyndon Baines Johnson version of the Democratic Party, the the, the war whoring, war mongering, in, in individually, institutionally corrupt open for sale version of the Democratic Party. And that's who Joe Biden is. He's LBJ's mentally slow version of the little brother. I use some other phrase, but it's politically incorrect these days, so I can't say it. But the uh, pillows get the idea. That's what we have. Um, The dementia candidate in the White House with all the baggage of an LBJ style administration without even any of the benefits. Uh, So I think, so the fundamentals, massively favored Trump. The dynamics in the Republican Party massively favored Trump. The dynamics of what's happening in working class America favored Trump. They are all aligned so that Biden has almost no chance in an honest election. And that's why the goal has been, well, let's see if we can make it a, uh, in a uh, dishonest election uh, by let's see if we can put him in prison, bankrupt him, humiliate him, shame him, get a bunch of corrupt judges to issue crazy verdicts. That will they they're convinced that though that's what will finally convince America is we just can't take Donald Trump uh, when Americans are seeing through it for exactly what it is open weaponized lawfare that what it's really doing is indicting the American legal system and making us look like an ongoing laughing stock to the rest of the world I don't know who we're going to be able to lecture in the future you can't use your system I mean every now and then you see Blinken make some statement. You know, how dare they treat Navalny this way in Russia? So are you part of the Biden administration? You're trying to lock up your opponent. You're trying to bankrupt your opponent. You're trying to, you're bringing allegations for nutcases who are getting $83 million jury verdicts out of New York, who everybody can see is batshit insane. The, I mean, these are just, these are bad cases that as more facts get exposed, people are like, that's the, that's what's going on. That's the allegation. You got to be kidding me. And they can all see through it. And so as the world falls apart, thanks to the actions of the Biden administration, 
And as populism surfaces, resurfaces and resurges, and Trump is its most effective vehicle, uh, the European elites have every reason to be terrified uh, because it's time for a uh, real change. And, you know, Trump you know, said we should be out of NATO in 2016, thought about it while he was there. John Bolton said if he had been reelected, he was definitely going to do it. Well, now he's definitely going to do it. You know, the, there's a lot of things that Trump might not have done that they might have backed him off of doing that he's going to be far less disinclined when you try to bankrupt him, destroy his business, destroy his legacy and put him in prison for life on bogus charges. A guy like mm-hmm. Donald Trump doesn't wilt and walk away in the gently into the good night. Mm-hmm. Um, and he will indeed fight against the dying of the light. So uh, European elites should be scared. They have good cause for it. They have very good cause for it because um, there's another thing, um, by the way, which um, is implicit in everything you've said. But um, I, I just wanted to point it out, which is what you're describing, Robert, is actually politics. It's real politics. It's people organizing, people voting, people talking to each other, people deciding whom they want to vote for. We don't do that in Europe anymore. We absolutely hate that in Europe. If you look at the politics here in Britain, if you look at politics in Germany, uh, the whole point there is to try to prevent real politics of the kind happening like that with us. And we see this in the United States and it spooks us. And when I say us, I want to make it very clear. I mean the political class here, the political class in Europe, which is to be clear, and Europe has never had that depth of commitment to democracy that the United States does. I mean, you know, I think this is an essential thing to understand. The United States, I I, I say this all the time, I know that I'm repeating myself, but I want to say it still. The United States has a history of democracy going all the way back to the American Revolution, to the 18th century. It is implicit in the Constitution of the United States. In Europe, well, we only started really looking at democracy in any serious way from about the middle of the 20th century. So we don't have that depth of commitment. And the People who run things in Europe are to a great extent, and to the extent that people don't understand, still the old elites. So they want a controlled politics. That's always what they've been striving for. They've created institutions to control politics. And now they see the Americans, those people across the ocean, and they're actually engaging in real politics. And this is unnerving. It's frightening. It makes them worry that, you know, well, first of all, how do you control this thing? How do you control the United States? And beyond that, what if people in our own countries start looking at this and start saying, well, you know, we want more of that ourselves. Never underestimate that. Now, a few things that you said, first of all, I noticed what you said about housing prices being very, very high. They're very high in Britain. I don't know whether it's the same in the United States. In Britain, government policy is always to increase housing prices. It's an absolute central plank of especially conservative governments, uh, but Labour governments to a great extent too. I was listening to Nabulin of the uh, central bank chair in Russia, and she did a speech today. 
And of course, her policy is to reduce housing prices. She actually wants to make them lower, which, as I said, is so completely you know, upside down in, in terms of the way we do things in Britain that, I mean, I, I was just stunned by it. But anyway, I wanted to talk about a number of things. Firstly, what about Robert Kennedy? He is standing as an independent. I've seen opinion polls from the United States, which whenever people are reminded of him, suddenly his vote leaps up. You, you, he gets something like 20% of the vote. Uh, Trump falls, Biden falls even more. But Robert Kennedy, the moment people remember him, the moment people are aware of him, he surges upwards. What is going to happen with his campaign is because he's still there. He's still, uh, um, you know, campaigning. He's still running for the election. Is he still potentially a player in this election? Uh, no doubt. I've described him as both ballot insurance and life insurance for Trump at a minimum. Uh, to a degree. Uh, secondly, he's awakening and organizing an independent populist movement in the country that comes more from the left and the Democratic side of the aisle traditionally. But putting those people together in an organized way that I think will uh, survive his actual candidacy, independent of any success of the campaign. And then third, if something actually does happen uh, to Trump, for sure, uh, but uh, even potentially independent of that, uh, the, he's a if he gets into the debates, he's a very viable candidate uh, for the presidency. So on the first part, the there's really no constitutional basis under American law to exclude a candidate from the ballot who's constitutional constitutionally qualified. And and secondly, the constitutional qualifications have historically been a, a question for Congress where they're in controversy. So people challenged John McCain, he was born in Panama, whether he was a natural born citizen under that provision of the clause as a condition of the presidency. Uh, challenged Barack Obama, alleging that Obama had not been born in the United States, was not a natural born American uh, due to the fact that his father was not American. And at the time, domestic American law did not recognize someone born of an American woman under a certain age outside the country as necessarily a U.S. citizen. Uh, and as an example, in those challenges, the courts ruled that is not the power of the courts to determine. That is for Congress, uh, that, you know, Congress, when it certifies the election, can decide whether or not someone is constitutionally qualified or not. So the they're the novel and, quite frankly, ludicrous interpretation of the 14th Amendment, which is a civil war provision that was meant to just disqualify those uh, sitting elected officials who abandoned the government in, 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 for the Confederacy were not going to be immediately reinstated to power outside of a pardon by Congress. Uh, the, that provision was considered dead uh, by the time, after multiple pardons were issued by Congress by the 1890s. And yet that provision is now being resuscitated to mean we'll just call you an insurrectionist and magically ban you from the ballot like the lunatics from the Colorado Supreme Court did. And so uh, that doesn't have any legal foundation. Highly likely the Supreme Court reverses it and ultimately puts in motion the fact they're not going to be able to keep Trump off the ballot anywhere. But part of the reason underneath that politically is if you look at the dynamics, if Trump is for some reason removed from any of these ballots, you look at places like Maine, places like Colorado, places like 
California, the potential beneficiary is not necessarily Biden. Some of these states are states that lean so heavily Democratic, it'd be very hard for Trump to win. But if you added Trump's vote to Robert Kennedy's vote, because Trump isn't an option on, on the ballot in those states, suddenly Robert Kennedy can win those states. And all of a sudden, you might even have an election thrown to Congress with Robert Kennedy having all kinds of leverage because he's won multiple states. And he could use that leverage to assure almost like, you know, parliamentary politics, you know, put this person in charge of the USDA, put this person in charge of the FDA, put this person in charge of the CIA. Uh, You know, Bobby Kennedy has some old family business uh, to deal with with some of those agencies. And that the, the so uh, that can happen. And some of the Democrats are tone deaf and are not paying attention to what you mentioned, Alexander. You dig into the data. Robert Kennedy's the most liked candidate of anybody. Uh, Robert Kennedy's still very well liked, very well respected. That's part one. Part two, when given him as an option, he gets as much as 20 percent of the vote already. Uh, and that's not and that's with voters who haven't been exposed to him in great detail. When he is exposed to people in long form formats, he's running a fascinating campaign using podcast formatting, alternative media as its pri- as his primary media. And he knew the institutional media was going to cut him out, but also he's tapping into it because what he finds is that the people that watch him in that long format, his willingness to answer any question, his willingness to acknowledge his change of positions on issues. It's like, hey, I used to think this. I changed. Here's why. Here's how. I'm open to changing on other things if I'm wrong. His sincerity of engagement, his honesty and authenticity just comes fully through. You don't get like some people have this sort of character of the Kennedys as arrogant or condescending. You don't get any of that uh, with Robert Kennedy. And so the more they're exposed to him, the more he rises. And particularly with that populist independent voter group like millennials and Zoomers who don't who aren't super comfortable at all with Trump, but are utterly disappointed by Biden. To give an example, the Pew poll found millennials and Zoomers hate Biden more than anybody. They had the lowest approval rating with that voter group. That used to be the foundation of the modern Obama Democratic Party going back to 08. And so uh, they've totally turned on him. That independent working class voter group would love someone like Bobby Kennedy. So Bobby Kennedy's uh, a live dog, as they say in the sports betting world. Uh, He provides, also, let's say they take out Trump. You know, one of the chats asked, what if they take Trump out? the Kennedy, the older Kennedy way, um, the, well, I, you know, what's going to happen that those voters aren't voting for Nikki Haley. So if they do something to Trump, that vote will go to Robert Kennedy and Robert Kennedy will be elected president of the United States. And the, it's one of the key things deterring two aggressive deep state actions. And I think you're even seeing some courts say, well, maybe we shouldn't rush through the criminal cases, man. Maybe let's hold off on this. Because do we really want Robert Kennedy to be in power? Uh, I can tell you that within the intelligence and national security apparatus, they're much more terrified of Robert Kennedy than they are of Donald Trump. That, you know, they know what they're getting with Trump. They don't like it. As the Blackstone guy said, yeah, Biden's an idiot, but he's a controllable one. Donald Trump, the problem is he's uncontrollable. But Robert Kennedy's not only uncontrollable, he's uncontrollable with uh, some uh, with it with knowing how to take apart some of these agencies that have been such a problem. Uh, the, the the CIA would I mean he's already said it. I'm going to fulfill my uncle's promise. We're going to spread it thousand a thousand feet into the wind. The I mean that 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 kind of assurances. So 
Uh, Bobby Kennedy is definitely someone to continue to pay attention to. He will impact what happens to Trump. He will impact the public dialogue and debate and discussion. He will be shifting the Overton window in a substantial way. And he's someone who can be elected president. And uh, it would be awesome uh, if uh, Bobby Kennedy, frankly, was president. Donald Trump or Bobby Kennedy, great by my book for a lot of the things that matter to me uh, and that matter to a lot of the populist cause and the deep state. And I mean, for example, as a good transition to the one of the next topics coming up, you know, Julian Assange has his final hearing coming up. Bobby Kennedy said, you won't have any doubt about who I am, because on day one, I'm going to be pardoning Julian Assange and I'm going to be pardoning Ed- Edward Stout. Day one, I mean, so yeah. he, he knows how to translate this into real policy. So Bobby Kennedy's for real. He's a likable man and he speaks very clearly. I mean, this is this is a important thing. I mean, I find it impossible to listen to Biden because, again, his language. I mean, I don't mean, I don't mean, you know, the, the fact And, and he used to problems. be very articulate. Remember, remember him in the 90s? Exactly. And so that, I mean, well, right. he used to be the Irish chatty guy. Yeah. And now he's li- literally like the worst case scenario of your yeah. dementia uncle. Absolutely. Absolutely. So he's likable and, 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 you know, he's got business <laughs> with the security services, which, we, you know, we can well, ima- we can understand fully why he's got reasons to be but i think beyond that even if that wasn't if that even that history wasn't there i still think he would be taking the positions that he is because that's the sort of that's where he's coming from that's what he actually thinks this is my own personal view let's talk about this 14th amendment business because this is the one that's uh, one of the things that the Europeans completely failed to understand, they thought that this would be a nice piece of wire pulling. You could just pull the wires here. You could do something with the 14th Amendment. Poof, the problem of Trump goes. They're now starting to realize it's not really quite that simple. Now, I happen to know quite a bit about the 14th Amendment, or at least, correction, I used to know quite a bit about the 14th Amendment because as part of my first degree all those years ago, I think I've said to people, I studied the American Civil War, the, you know, that period of American history very closely. And I remember the politics of the 14th Amendment. And you're absolutely correct. It was intended to deal with a specific problem. I think it was the vice president of the Confederacy came and tried to take his seat in Congress and they shocked people. And they said, we can't possibly allow this after the Civil War. And so they put together the 14th Amendment. And the idea that this old relic can be resuscitated and brought back to life and made use of in this way in politics is completely incredible to me. But we did get that decision in Colorado. Um, I understand that other states are coming down strongly against this idea. Even Massachusetts, for example, has now uh, decided that it's gone against it. And I believe in Maine, where the Secretary of State made a very bizarre decision. She said she'd really thought very hard about it. And when you read what she'd written, you knew that she hadn't. Anyway, apparently even there they're having cold feet. I mean, is there any possible way that the Supreme Court of the United States can allow this absurdity from Colorado to stand? And what if Donald Trump is convicted of something, even if it is not insurrection? Because Alex and I did a program with Jim Jatras, former secretary, uh, former uh, official in the 
State Department. He said, you know, they'll, they'll do it. They'll use it. That if he gets convicted of something, they'll use the 14th Amendment to stop him. I mean, can this happen? Uh, extremely unlikely. So the uh, I think the Supreme Court is going to step in. Constitutionally, the uh, pre uh, presidential qualifications that Congress has said it's not their uh, courts have said it's not within their power. I think the Supreme Court is likely to say that. They're likely to say that it's not, nor is it within the power of any state executive agency that they'll they'll come in and say that the question if a person otherwise qualifies for the ballot, the you know, number of petitions signed or they are they're on a certain party designation, et cetera, that a state has no right to add to that any other provision. There was a term limits case years ago where they tried to pass term limits. And the way they did it is they just said, we're not going to put you on the ballot if you exceed it, even though uh, term limits are not in the Constitution. Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. That's a ballot. That's a uh, the qualifications are listed. You can only require those qualifications. You can require no more. And the second part is that that who decides what's qualified, unless it's admitted or conceded. I've actually litigated that case uh, before where somebody admitted it. And had they not admitted it, the court recognized that uh, unless it's an agreed, undisputed fact that the person isn't qualified, like in my case, the person said they were 34, not yet 35. Uh, they said that that, too, is a decision for Congress, that Congress determines at the certification stage uh, rather than trying to control ballot access. Uh, you know, the Eugene V. Debs was a convicted felon for sedition. Uh, and he was on the ballot wherever he wanted to be in the United States in the 1920 presidential election. Um, so the so there's historical precedent uh, for that as well. So given the I think the Supreme Court realizing how disastrous this has been, how embarrassing these cases are to democracy in America, trying to tell people the candidate they want to be elected president can't be on on the ballot, they're going to come in and clear clean it all up and they're going to say the fourth they can also do it substantively on separate grounds which is the 14th amendment simply doesn't apply so the 14th amendment's own language you could argue it only applies as alan dershowitz has argued uh professor dershowitz to the uh confederacy circumstances and it just doesn't apply outside of that you could start there secondly you you could argue it doesn't apply to qualifications for office because if that was the intentions they would have then put it as an additional qualification rather than as grounds for congressional expulsion, for example, as the appropriate remedy, given it explicitly gives Congress the power to determine also the 14th Amendment's application and enforcement. And so the uh, so there's a third argument that the 14th Amendment's not enforceable in court under these circumstances. It's only enforceable in Congress when it concerns qualifications for office. But the presidency was specifically excluded. So they list a bunch of offices. And it's every office except the presidency and, and the vice presidency. And that's not a coincidence. They, they uh, did not intend for it to apply to the president whatsoever. So they could simply say, as even the trial court did, the lefty district court in Colorado said, this doesn't apply to the president by its own explicit language. And so the, they have so many legal outs. And we'll see which ones they adopt. But the Supreme Court's going to come in and say, no, this can't be applied. Probably will try to shut this down in the future of discouraging courts getting involved in this.
saying this is a if questions of presidential qualification belong to Congress, not the courts. And it's not a duty or a prerogative of state legislators or state executive agencies to do so and simply reinforce the same decisions they issued in both the McCain cases because he was challenged, Obama cases because he was challenged, that they did when they said, oh, this is not justiciable within the court system. This is a decision dedicated to the legislative branch, in this case, Congress, not the states. The I think that's highly likely where they're going to go. The uh, Now, I think, again, Kennedy provides some deterrence for them going elsewhere because if they take him off some of these Democratic state ballots, the most likely income outcome is they actually jeopardize Biden more rather than less. Right. Colorado. Biden's not going to lose Colorado. It's, it's a, a huge Democratic training state because of the Denver Aspen massive professional class managerial movement there over the past years. So despite some Latino and rural movement towards uh, Trump in Colorado, the, the, the Denver Aspen Boulder problem completely counteracts that. But Bobby Kennedy could win. Right. You know, those are the so because it's a state where Biden might not get over 50. So Biden might get 45 percent of the vote. And that makes him an easy winner without uh, with Trump on the ballot. But without Trump on the ballot, maybe Kennedy gets 47 and wins. Uh, so it even encourages an alignment between Kennedy and, and Biden, uh, between Kennedy and Trump, rather, against Biden in some of these uh, jurisdictions. But there's no constitutional basis for the cases that are being pursued against Trump. Supreme Court, I think, highly likely will come to that same conclusion. Completely agree. I mean, can I just say, if it is just justiciable only by Congress, which is consistent with my memory of, you know, the debates that took place um, in the 1860s, I, um, it's important to remember that Congress has already examined Donald Trump's actions. They tried to impeach him over what happened, you know, on the 6th of January, and he was acquitted. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, in, a, in a sense, if, you, if you're going to, if that's, if that's the argument, which I think it probably could be, then Congress, Congress has already decided. And you can't just come back to this again and again, to my mind, this whole idea of trying to disqualify Trump is not only ridiculous, it also is incredibly dangerous. Do people within the Democratic Party understand what they're doing? That, you know, he's the most popular politician at this moment in time, as I understand it, in the United States. He's looking a certainty to become the Republican Party's nominee for the presidency. And then in an election year, you disqualify him? I mean, the, I mean that would be an awesome event. And in the United States, I mean, how would people respond to something like that? I mean, there would be, surely there would be a huge outcry. At the very least, you get a worse crisis of legitimacy in the political system and the political class than the already very profound crisis that exists now. Those are my thoughts. Now, I just do want to return to these cases. Now, I, I have to say that we've got sort of verdicts in two of them now. Now, I, 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 Robert, I want you to explain these cases to me a little bit more detail. Firstly, the defamation case, we, which we just had. Am I getting this right? Is this an allegation 
about some kind of sexual assault that was made in the 1970s, which has never been prosecuted, never been reported to the police by the, by the claimant. And Trump has denied it, as is his right. And he's called the person who is making this claim a liar, which follows from the fact that he's denying it. And she, on that basis, has been defamed by him in some way and has been awarded $83 million in compensation. Because if that is if that is the what's happened, as it seems to me it is, then that is absolutely that's nuts. I mean that is that is the legal system again completely turned on its head. And the other case, which is the fraud case, which is that, you know, he said that the uh, value of certain buildings was higher than some people think it was, but he did that after apparently consulting experts. He obtained uh, loans from banks on the strength of that. The banks were perfectly happy to lend him their money. They weren't too concerned about the value of the buildings, and he paid them back, and he paid them back with interest. And that is fraud. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I've completely unable i really am to understand the reasoning behind these decisions i mean surely if there is an appeal system here they must collapse under the weight of their own absurdity yeah i mean i think it's such obvious open overt politicized uh lawfare and it's why that it's it's diminishing uh, credibility and increasing backlash amongst the American public to these cases. It's exposing our legal system in ways our legal system has rarely been witnessed. I mean, the, the American legal system has often wrongfully targeted and abused its power, but it has done so against the politically marginalized. Never someone that is the leading candidate and, and former president and likely future president of the United States. And so what they've done is they've put a massive spotlight on who they are. And it's why both courts, why all the courts have tried to impose gag orders on Trump, prohibit him from talking, prohibit his lawyers from talking, prohibit others from talking, exposing how fraudulent this is because they wanted the show trial verdict without the show part of it being exposed. And the show part of it has been exposed. And they are, when people look at the facts, preposterous cases. So in the case of this nutty lady, I think she used to call herself the bat lady. I mean, she's totally nuts. It's obvious she's nuts. Anderson Cooper realized she was nuts, had to go to a break as quickly as possible. She was on with Rachel Maddow last night, defining women's rights as them shopping with Trump's money. Uh, I mean, this is an embarrassment that this lunatic can get $83 million uh, while hardworking people are struggling just to get reimbursed their basic expenses in, in your ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill civil case in America. So the, uh, it, the the damage award is ridiculous. It's particularly preposterous because historically an exculpatory no was allowed. You make an accusation against someone, you're allowed to say no, it didn't happen without being sued for libel for it. Um, the the mo Most of his statements were opinion statements anyway. And of course, the, even a New York jury in a corrupt case managed by a politically tainted, corrupt court uh, concluded he didn't rape her at all. It had this vague definition of sexual abuse, 
that you know they said no to rape but yes to sexual abuse it's like that didn't even make sense reality was it was a jury that hated trump recognized how insane she was so that trump never really did this and yet then the judge goes and lies to a second jury and says he was found guilty of rape totally false just lies to the jury because he's this particular judge has abused his power the entire time he's been on the bench you can find it in a wide range of cases the uh, I forget how connected he was to the Donzinger case, but there was some part of that he was connected to uh, the the, uh, the everything that happened in, involving Chevron in Ecuador and Stephen Donzinger, the, the, the lawyer. The uh, if I mispronounce his name, well, he's one of many. So you know, Salavi, but uh, you know, good guy who was wrongfully targeted by the system, in my opinion. The that he's he's that kind of judge. He's a rogue judge, Bill Clinton judge. He's the judge who tried to who tried to dismiss everything against Prince Andrew. Related to Epstein allegations. I mean, that's who this guy is. You know, the uh, uh, he was the mentor to the lawyer prosecuting the case for the lunatic here. And, you know, you know, it just it was levels of insanity. Threatened Trump repeatedly throughout the proceedings directly. There's so many errors though beyond the laughable absurdity of the verdict itself. Is they excluded all the judge excluded almost all evidence that was damaging to her case. Included a bunch of evidence that was uh, not relevant or pertinent or material to the case uh, and, uh, and and falsely instructed the jury. If, if, you know, again, it's almost like I think this judge knows this verdict has no chance to get upheld by any competent, honest appeals court, but didn't care because the goal was to hurt Trump during the up the upcoming election. And, you know, the false he's been found guilty of what's not really true. The and, and that's all this is. These are show trials to get a result. And what is this? America's judges are so used to doing it that they don't realize they got away with it in the past because of who they were doing it to, not because the American people had any clue they were doing it. Uh, the same is true of the embarrassment of a judge, uh, judge uh, the uh, 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 in the civil proceedings, the Associated Press, no, no, no Trump backer there. They just did a massive study and said they could find no case in the history of New York or the entire country like what was happening, that nobody's business had ever been shut down without any allegation of a single victim. It's it's never happened, literally never. And that's what this judge is threatening to do in New York um, based on a made-up, fabricated case. Again, with gag orders, again, with denial of jury trial rights, Again, with uh, uh, improperly included evidence, improperly excluded evidence by a partial prejudicial judge who should have assigned the case to the commercial division from the inception. Mm-hmm. So it's another case that has almost no chance of getting affirmed. The Court of Appeals already enjoined various aspects of it by any competent ethical court. So why do it when you know there's a very high chance the New York Court of Appeals set it aside? Again, PR. So the, the goal is to say Trump, a convicted fraudster, Trump, a convicted rapist, Trump. You know, that's the goal is they hope that the accumulation, because it normally works when they do it to Joe Schmo, when they do it to some little independent person, it you, the smear works. Uh, and so they're not accustomed to people seeing through their scam, not accustomed to people saying that we know exactly what you're doing here. Now, if they'd studied American populist, they wouldn't have been surprised uh, The because, you know, whether it came from sort of the black urban tradition with Marion Barry and how he was entrapped, other black mayors were targeted in a similar way. Mm-hmm. And how did the black community respond in those uh, cities? 
rally to the candidate because they didn't trust what the system was doing and why it was doing it. The same is true, you know, Huey Long, they tried to impeach him, uh, tried to indict him. Uh, Edwin Edwards, they, I think, indicted four or five times. Uh, the the famous uh, raging Cajun of Louisiana. Uh, Big Jim Folsom in Alabama, my hometown, Bookie Turner, Chattanooga. They indicted him right during the middle of a runoff, thought it would get him defeated. It actually, he used it to get reelected. So if you knew the uh, Jimmy Curley, constantly targeted in Boston. So there's a long history of populist figures, labor leaders, civil rights leaders. Remember, they locked up MLK. They thought that would rally people against MLK, just did just the opposite. Hoover frequently made that miscalculation when it came to uh, Martin Luther King. So you, you, uh, they, the system thought this legal using weaponizing the legal system would smear Trump enough that the ridiculousness of their cases, the legal absurdity of what they did, violating rules of evidence, violating statute of limitations rules, violating rights related to motions to dismiss and motions for summary adjudication, violating rights to jury trials, violating rights as to evidence, what was included, what was excluded, uh, misstating the law, misapplying the law, ignoring the selective prosecution of all these cases. They know that there should be consequence somewhere on appeal, don't care because they're hoping it uh, does enough to keep Trump from winning in 2024 and sends a deterrent message to any other outsider down the road. Um, but the the interesting thing is all of the Supreme Court cares about the integrity and the impartiality of the American judicial system and respect for it globally. Then they can use one doctrine to erase all of these, <coughs> both civil cases, both criminal cases. Because all of them concern statements and conduct President May Trump made while he was president, at some level, the the most uh, the least immunity oriented case is the Florida federal one, but all the rest, uh, all it, but even that one has immunity implications. If they come in and say, you know what, we shouldn't allow local governments, politically motivated governments, to target their political opponent using the legal system. They could use selective prosecution under the First Amendment to get rid of all these cases, or they could say presidential immunity applies to anything he did while he was president. The exclusive remedy, this is already going up to the Supreme Court to the D.C. case uh, in all likelihood, the remedy is impeachment and conviction. And then you can do those things civilly or criminally. But the president cannot be subject to random extortion by any local prosecutor anywhere in the world. Or you have a, a handicapped president, uh, a, a presidency that's effectively unable to implement the people's will. And I'm hoping the court recognizes that this should never happen again and more fully embraces what the Constitution anticipates, which is if you've got a rogue president, the remedy is impeachment. The remedy is not rando indictment, rando lawsuit, rando bankrupting, uh, all the rest. Uh, so uh, because so far the American justice system has been on trial in these cases and the verdict has been damning indeed. Indeed. Can I ask you about Georgia? Because this is another case that you know quite well. And uh, uh, from what I can understand, um, we are now getting a very, very um, interesting light cast on the prosecutors there. They seem to have been uh, um, brought that prosecution in the most remarkable way and being very interesting people. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Because, again, that case, which, by the way, 
in Britain, for some reason, they thought that was the most dangerous case against Trump. That was the one that was going to really sink him. Tell us about what's gone wrong with that one. Oh, yeah, it was fascinating how the uh, interpretation, I mean, there was core legal problems with that case from day one. Again, the presidential immunity issues implicated, but also a ludicrous application of the RICO laws to suggest contesting, questioning, or challenging an election. And then the factual issues they raised, because I represented President Trump for a period of time in those Georgia election cases, is that he has a very robust factual defense in those cases. Uh, that the and they don't have the same quite corrupt jury pool or judicial pool that they have in New York and the District of Columbia. Um, always raised questions, but as you've pointed out, it turns out the prosecutor in Atlanta went to the Zelensky School of Public Administration, uh, and they decided to use and weaponize their their office to basically enrich themselves and their uh, loved ones, quite literally. So the uh, it was it's I give him credit for the grift, you know the uh, it's like uh, the you know people get like African governments that borrow from the way Western governments operated, but they're just a little more open and overt with the criminality or the corruption or the bribery, the uh, and then they get accused of being more corrupt than their uh, Western colonial predecessors when that's who they learned it from. The uh, it, it's uh, they've just taken it to a more brazen level, you know the to to get millions of dollars out of the taxpayer dollars to give to uh, your sugar baby. In this case, him being the sugar baby, uh, the is so that they could collectively uh, go on private vacations and spend ludicrous amounts of taxpayer dollars. It's a massive crime is what she did. Uh, that, that was the behavior. The, it was laundering funds from taxpayer purposes for personal use. And it was all done under the pretext of, in justification of I'm going to get Donald Trump and that will somehow excuse this massive criminality. Uh, it, it was a case that was never going to do well under the hood because New York has, you know, they've, they've made expert their efforts at corruption of a justice system. The feds are as good at it as anybody. The Atlanta prosecutors are more half-ass at it and that they were more likely to get exposed in the process aside from that trial being unlikely to ever get anywhere near a verdict prior to election day. Mm. And so the, the DC case was always their best case there because they got corrupt judge, uh, judicial pool, corrupted jury pool, combine the two and you can get a lynching verdict with ease about anything concerning Trump prior to election day. But that's where the immunity issues probably are going to delay that to where the trial doesn't occur before election day. The, but you, you see what the American legal system really operates. You're getting a sneak peek at it at every level. The partisan nature of it, the politicized nature of it, the weaponized nature of it, the selectivity of it. Uh, but you're also seeing the corruption behind the scenes. And the uh, Atlanta expose is, just takes it to a new level. Usually the corruption is a little more hidden. Uh, it's not as bold and brazen as, as theirs was. And it all got exposed because the dude was married. So you know, it turned out his wife objected. The uh, maybe she wouldn't have if she'd gone on some cruises too. But the it's kind of like the you know world wrestling guy uh, probably went a little too far there. But you know she would have never exposed uh, his his abusive behavior if he wouldn't have stopped paying the the payout the hush money payouts. Mm -hmm. The uh, uh, so yeah, it the fraud is looks exactly like what it likely is, and it's a further embarrassment. Uh, much as sanctuary city policies have backfired on Democrats, going after Trump 
constantly backfires on on Democrats. Uh, and I think we're going to see another example of it in the uh, what happens to that prosecutor at the end of the road in Georgia. Yeah, let's let's pivot now to Biden and, you know, the uh, way in which he's handling things in the United States. Now, you were making the uh, absolutely valid comparison between Biden and LBJ. I mean, LBJ, I remember LBJ, by the way. I, rem- I mean, I'm just old enough to remember LBJ. And yes, he was all the things that you say. He was absolutely corrupt. He was warmongering. He was brutal. He was coarse. He was also, I have to say this, a force of nature. He was a very, very powerful person. I cannot believe that LBJ would ever have got himself into the mess that Biden has got himself into over Texas. I mean, am I right in thinking that? The very first thing they did when, you know, this happened with Texas, I mean, they didn't really negotiate. They didn't discuss this with the people in Texas. They didn't look at the opinion polls. They didn't assess what most people think about immigration. They went to the United States Supreme Court and they got an order from the United States Supreme Court. And I'm not going to talk about the rights and wrongs of that. You can, if you can, like Robert, because I don't know. I mean, I, I, I really don't know here. You can discuss this if you wish. But they got an order which they thought was a grenade they could throw at Texas. And it was a grenade that's blown up in their face because they should never have done that. They should never have resorted to that kind of thing. It was obvious that the governor of Texas, that the state government in Texas is taking the popular decision about something that Americans, the vast majority of Americans, really care about. As I say, a real politician like LBJ, somebody like him, would never have got into this mess. But it's Biden all over. Over to you, Robert. No doubt. And this stems to the Obama administration and the challenge with Arizona uh, and Sheriff Joe. So the Arizona during the Obama administration was trying to deal with its wave of illegal immigration, pass certain state laws to help allow the state government to enforce it. Sheriff Joe, whatever you, you think of him, was you know controversial, but he was big on cracking down on illegal immigration in the state. That case went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said feds have carte blanche. That because it impacts foreign affairs, that that means that the state governments can't protect themselves from trespass and the state governments can't uh, basically enforce federal law about illegal behavior. People are not legally present there. And that's what put all of this into motion. I think that was it was a split decision. And I thought it was a problematic decision because the when it gets to the point that you're you're making the feds the exclusive means of enforcing immigration law. You're subjecting states to undue risk, in my opinion, uh, and that politically it would backfire at some point. And now we're seeing it in Texas. And you're right. The politically sage move of the Biden administration would not have been to highlight how bad their immigration policy has been by suing the Texas to try to stop them from prohibiting illegal immigration. Because most people are like, well, why are you doing that? You claim to be against illegal immigration, but you're preventing a state from helping prevent illegal immigration. And especially as the problem has got way out of hand, but and but to escalate it to the point now to where you know you could have a we haven't had a feds versus state 
like law enforcement lined up against one another in a long time in America. People think of, you know, the schoolhouse doors and the integration orders in the 60s and the 50s in America, but the uh, there were no soldiers or police standing in the door. You know, George Wallace did his little five-second speech, and that was that. Here they're talking about literally confronting each other in violent terms between two armed forces of two different forms, one state government, one federal government. And that's a very bad idea. And the question is, and, and there's a bad idea for two reasons. One, I mean, you're talking about civil war effectively there. I mean, maybe it's not fully and formally declared, but you have a version of it. And then secondly, you're highlighting the issue because it, it puts a big spotlight on why is this happening? Oh, it's about illegal immigration. And the Biden administration is so committed to more of it that they're willing to shoot at National Guard of Texas or domestic police of Texas. The border guard police have already said they're not getting involved in this because the border the border union uh, police union supports Trump and thinks uh, 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 that basically Biden has made them escorts to illegals rather than deterrence to illegals as an agency uh, for which there's a lot of substantial evidence for which it may become part of a future Biden impeachment, uh, depending on we'll see how that progresses uh, over the course of the year. But yeah, I mean, constitutionally, it all stems from the Supreme Court's as Arizona decision, making it difficult for state governments to enforce immigration laws and protect their own rights. There is a constitutional exception, which is if you're being invaded, and the argument, then you have the right to defend yourself however necessary. The one interpretation of the word invasion is that it's limited to a actual foreign state doing it, not any random foreign actor. Uh, well, it's like, what if it was a tribe? Well, you know, you know, like you think of the old Genghis Khan days. No foreign state, but the cartel decided to uh, invade as a group. Would we really say that's not an invasion? So I'm not convinced that it has to be a foreign state actor. And then the only question, I mean, there's quite literally people coming across the border, legally don't belong here, causing all kinds of problems here. To the ordinary American, kind of sounds like an invasion. If 20 people showed up in my house deciding they're going to eat all the food and stay in the house and use everything, feels like my house has been invaded. Doesn't matter if they got a government badge on or not. The So I think the immigration issue also continues to hurt Biden badly. Uh, so highlighting it was a mistake. Part of it, though, is the Supreme Court often making these kind of mistakes in these kind of cases. I mean, why risk this kind of conflict? They could have just said, no, the Biden administration doesn't have this power for the time being. And and uh, and allow an injunction to prevent the Biden administration from doing anything while Texas enforces the law for, say, six months that to, to see how what, what works out. Instead, they're escalating the conflict by their constant cowardice. And unfortunately, that's a long history of the United States and the Supreme Court. You know, the Dred Scott decision helped birth the first American Civil War. Uh, so I, what they decide on the Trump cases is going to dictate, you know, a lot of things going forward. People's confidence in our system of governance, et cetera. But nothing hurts. Uh, almost the only thing that hurts is like super hyperinflation. But otherwise, nothing hurts a sense of national identity and confidence in a, in a government than its ability to at least control its borders. Would you trust the head of household if they couldn't control who came into your house? Same principle. Absolutely. I mean, if you talk about the very first democracy, the one in Athens, the very first thing they did was they established very, very tough citizen rules and did not allow people from outside to come in and simply obtain citizenship. I mean, that was 
um, seen, by the way, as essential to democracy. <laughs> but for reasons I don't think one needs to explain, actually. But, I mean, it is this extraordinary mixture of, you know, aggressiveness and incompetence and what you said before, disassociation, which is so characteristic of this administration. That, I mean, they lurched into this thing. I mean, you know, I, I, I recall Arizona, but, I mean, now immigration has become such an issue in the United States. What's happened to Kamala Harris, the immigration side? I mean, nobody ever sees or hears anything about her. There doesn't seem to be any real control or any visible control on what is going on in the border at all. You said earlier, and I, by the way, I should say I've seen that statistic commented upon in many places. Now, it's, there's no doubt it's true that all the jobs generated under Biden have gone to have not gone to native-born Americans. So, given that this is so, it takes a particular combination of arrogance, blindness aggressiveness, insecurity, to fall into this, this kind of political trap. But this, I would suggest, is what Biden and his team do all the time. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it, 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 and it keeps getting compounded by additional levels and layers of incompetency and intrusiveness. So to give an example, I mean, right now, the, uh, and for, so, you have the political weaponized lawfare against Trump. You have all the meddling in, in globally. You have what's happening uh, in the domestic economic realm. You have the failure of any in, a real of uh, the professional managerial class to manage much of anything. But you have another example of this that's now happening globally is what they're trying to do to farmers and food. So, you know, we have the global pharma revolts happening all across Europe and more parts around the world. I mean, the French still have the best. They're still the best at it. They're like, find somebody to, to put our manure on. Find somebody's house, somebody's building, somebody's police car. I mean, the, the French are, are great that way. But like Americans would like to eat the way the French do, where you can go in and you can pick, you know, you know exactly which farm that meat came from and you know, local produce made in the traditional local way. Uh, it, you know, that there's a reason why French wine is as good as it is. There's a reason why French cheese is as good as it is. French brandy and cognac and champagne and all the rest. The uh, well, in America, the, the, the best example of that traditional mechanism of farming uh, is the Amish communities. Uh, the, the Pennsylvania Dutch, as they're sometimes called, uh, you know, the a, a group of uh, religious folks that fled the German Swiss border because of persecution. They're nonviolent. They don't join in war or other such conflict. Um, but they're some of the nicest, sweetest, ordinary people you meet. And their way of life is completely counter to the modern industrialized system we have. They don't participate in big technology. There's no social media accounts. Nobody's checking out grandma's YouTube page uh, or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok video. The, uh, they, they don't involve themselves in big education. They privately educate their children through the eighth grade uh, using traditional methods and mechanisms. Um, they uh, don't participate very much in big pharma. Uh, they, they, you know, their vaccination rates are, are you know, more reasonable uh, than the levels at which we're, you know, I think there's 93 vaccines now recommended for your three-year-old in America. It's kind of nuts. Uh, and then they're also outside the big food spectrum. 
Uh, they grow their own food, grow their own cattle, make their own dairy, make their own meat, make their own poultry, make their own vegetables. I mean, I've eaten at some great restaurants, including the Fat Duck there outside of London. Uh, the you know Joe Rubichon, which has a great branch here in Vegas, Guy Savoie there in Paris. Uh, some of the best steak and sushi in the world in uh, Kobe Steak in Tokyo. Best meal I ever had was at uh, Amos Miller's dinner table. Mm -hmm. Amos Miller is an old school Amish farmer, multi-generational, employs a lot of other Amish farmers, and people are able to buy his food directly by being part of his private membership association. They can get his milk, they can get his cheese, his yogurt, his honey, his jam, uh, his you know little pumpkin pies, his bread, uh, his beef, and his poultry. But in the last, uh, you know, the U.S. government has been harassing him on and off now for several years. And now the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture has come in. Uh, they illegally searched his property based on a, uh, a affidavit that was procured by fraud, uh, by lying to the court with by material omission and commission uh, in a way that the statute didn't even authorize them to do. Then they took everything in all of his freezers and said he couldn't do anything with it, couldn't sell it, couldn't eat it, couldn't feed his own family. Then they filed a lawsuit and got an ex parte injunction. They knew I was present in the state. Uh, they knew I was there. Didn't tell me about the ex parte injunction. Didn't ask me to give me, afford me an opportunity to present my argument to the court and got the order based on, again, false information given to the judge. So that right now he's not able to sell any of his raw milk products, even for companies he's invested in in other states that he doesn't even own and control. They are attempting to shut him down completely and prohibit him and assert the authority to not only prohibit a farmer from selling to us directly, but prohibit us from being able to buy it directly. Uh, they're demanding his customer list and his client list and anybody who's ever contributed to him because they want to be able to invade those individuals' privacy because they want a complete monopoly for the corporatized, industrialized, monopolized system already. Uh, if, you know, people should have seen why during a pandemic do we have a meat problem in America, America, which is you know some of the biggest cattle uh, grazing in the world, because four companies control over ninety percent of our meat supply. Of uh, you know, four companies control or even less our, our pork supply, our poultry supply, our core food supply, our milk supply. So what you know, the uh, raw milk—I call it natural milk. Uh, the the natural milk is made in ways that m uh, many people find not only healthier for them, better for them, but often medically necessary for them due to their conditions. That right now in America, less than two percent of all of our food, it comes from small independent farmers uh, that directly purchased by, uh, by consumers. The rest is controlled by just a few big corporations. And it's with all the chemicals and preservatives and additives and synthetic crap, whatever that lunatic stuff that Bill Gates is making that gives them mantis is already, you know, who wants to look like that guy? The, uh, it, that's what's happening out there. And now they're trying to crush Amos Miller bankrupt him by taking away his ability. He's going to have to dump out his own milk. He's going to have to dump out and throw out uh, 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 hundreds of thousands of dollars of food and inventory mm -hmm. under the orders of the state of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes to food freedom. Do you have a right? Does a farmer have a right to farm the way they know how to farm? 
Does a person, do you as, an, as a person anywhere in the world, as a universal human right, have the right to determine your own diet? What goes in your own belly? What goes in your own fridge? The government is asserting, because in this case, they seize things that he could feed his own family with. They're asserting that they have the right to go into your house and seize whatever is there unless they've pre-approved it with a stamp of, okay, this is okay for you to eat. Uh, that's how extreme the Amos Miller case is. So the core foundation of food freedom is going to be decided in his case. Uh, there's a hearing for those interested, February 29th, 1.30 p.m., Lancaster Court of Common Pleas, where we'll be doing the full hearing about, do you have a constitutional right to determine what goes into your own body? Do you have a, uh, as a matter of liberty, do you have a constitutional property right for those people that were co-owners or members or had their own food uh, located in those freezers from it being seized and stolen by the Pennsylvania government? Uh, or can the state government and federal government now control everything? And, and as Thomas Jefferson said, a person who doesn't control their own diet is just a chattel slave of the state. If you don't control what goes into your own body, you don't even own your own body. You don't have real freedom or liberty or property in the world. So and so his case is emblematic in America that we, too, are experiencing our own farm and food rebellion, much as people are seeing de demonstrated across Europe. This is an astonishing. I, I, I am stunned. I, I'm stunned and appalled. Can I just say, I mean, we you know, you may you don't know this, Robert, but I actually I only buy farm foods. I, I, there are there, there are farmers markets. There's a farmers market close to me, and I know the farmers, and that's where I buy my food. So apparently, this would be illegal now in the United States. I mean, that is that is pretty incredible. I have to say, I mean, it it it, it amazes me in the United States. I mean, this is the country where the, what they had the the Homestead Act. I mean, it was all of wasn't wasn't that how America was built? People going out and setting up their own farms. And, you know, building up their own agriculture. Wasn't this the way that America became, you know, prosperous? Because there were all those farmers making all that food. And, you know, in the 19th century and the early 20th century, well, in fact, well into the middle of the 20th century, Americans were so much stronger and bigger than everybody else because they were eating so much better. And now the government is apparently not going to allow a farmer to grow his own food. I find this amazing. I find this incredible. Can I just say, even in the Soviet Union, this may come as a shock to people, but they had private farmers markets. I mean, you go to Russia, you still see them. But, you know, farmers there were allowed to sell their own food. Of course, they had to work all the rest of the time in collective farms and state farms and all of that. But they were allowed their own plots and they're able to sell their own food. Apparently, in the United States, this isn't possible anymore. And this Amish farmer, I've heard about the, I mean, everybody knows about the, everybody knows about food. And I mean, you know, as you correctly said, a peaceful, law-abiding, I believe, un incredibly, exceptionally law-abiding community. All they'd ask is to be left alone. And the entire weight of the United States government comes down upon them. The whole point again about America was that people like that would be able to go there and live their lives and build their lives peacefully and lawfully. And apparently that's no longer possible anymore. Well, no wonder people are angry and are looking 
the change from this particular political system. Well, um, keep me informed about this case, please, Robert, because this is something that really is of interest to me, because, as I said, food issues are something that really astonish me. And as you absolutely rightly say, are, are important to me. And food freedom, no question about it, it is absolutely essential. It is as much a part of freedom as anything else. I mean, it is the air we breathe, we breathe, the food we eat, it's part of our freedom as well. And of course, our freedom, the freedom to till one's own land, to grow one's own things on it. Well, there we go. Um, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm just, I'm just stunned. And um, perhaps, perhaps this is the point to ask. I mean, who exactly in the administration of Pennsylvania is taking these bizarre decisions? If you can explain this to me, because again, I don't understand it. I presume this is a local government thing. Is that they got some kind of regulation, food regulation that they're objecting to? I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know because, as I said, this doesn't make any sense at all. It's the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture and sort of the Democratic political machine that runs the state mm. that's running the show. And then the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office mm. is helped prosecuting it and pursuing it. Mm. And the uh, and then occasionally the Food and Drug Administration and the U.S. Department of Agriculture jumps in to help them out, uh, depending on the circumstances. And part of it comes from a regulatory statist model of operation mm. that they think, uh, you know, it's like the old IRS statement. You know, you should be glad what we don't tax. When the IRS in the 1930s proposed taxing people for cooking their own food, they said, you know, that's labor. You know, that's labor value. We should call that a tax and imputed income. Mm -hmm. It's that same mindset. It's a statist professional managerial class. You shouldn't be allowed to do anything that we don't tell you you have a permission slip for first. And the and that's the, the, the sort of foundation of it. Then you have the corruption aspect which that these agencies are captured agencies in the bed in bed with and doing the business of big corporate uh, institutions, whether mm. it's big pharma in the case of yeah. the FDA, big ag in the case of the USDA or the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture. Mm. For example, you take Amos Miller there. They have four listed co uh, complaints, none from customers in his entire history. So you're talking about millions of product food um, uh, put out there to tens of thousands of customers. And then you dig in and you find out not a single one of those customers supported any one of those so-called complaints. It's about zero complaints. I mean, it's got to be the best record of any food farmer at that scale in, in history, modern history. Whereas by contrast, your big corporate farms, they're doing food recalls for poisoning people every other week. And Pennsylvania's never sought this kind of remedial or, or injunctive action against any of them. So that's the second part of it. And I think it's the corruption of statism and incompetence of statism that we're seeing reflected and represented in the health world, too. It was put on massive blast during everything that went crazy during COVID. But look at what's happening on the vaccine context. Like all efforts, uh, our efforts to try to sue the Food and Drug Administration, the courts won't allow us to do it. They won't allow any American to say, hey, look, the FDA is lying. Or the CDC is lying about something related to the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, that it's not really safe, not really effective, not even really a vaccine, doesn't prevent the transmission uh, or infection of COVID-19. In some cases, its side effects are worse for certain demographics than any benefit it could possibly have, even as a therapeutic. Uh, the especially given the lighter version of later variants of COVID-19. But not willing, the courts aren't willing to allow anybody to challenge or question what the government is doing. And that's why you look at, you know, Texas Attorney General is trying to take action. He's suing Pfizer. 
Florida uh, Surgeon General has said it should be withdrawn. So you're seeing, again, local state governments try to do something. And it was interesting that I think it was at the, the prime minister of Slovakia, the new prime minister of Slovakia, where Melania Trump is from and her mother recently passed away and she was from, that he's saying he's going to investigate everything connected to yeah. COVID-19. It's, it's, it's somewhere somebody's going to break through the dam because yeah. this was such a global corruption. I think the greatest public health scandal in the history, uh, uh, modern history of the world, that somebody somewhere is going to really unveil what happened. And mm. it's going to take some dissident populace somewhere. And mm. some local and state governments are doing it here. Mm. And we'll see if they're able to uh, get relief or the courts block them. Mm. I'm pursuing a case for Brooke Jackson, the biggest whistleblower in the country against mm. Pfizer uh, related to the COVID-19 vaccine. We'll see if the federal judge there allows us to get to discovery. Mm. But it may be the case that our best remedy will come from the newly populist enshrined prime minister of a small country happens to be the home of the probably the past and future first lady Melania Trump uh, to get to the bottom of this real scandal that was uh, the COVID-19 so-called vaccine and the excess deaths that seem to follow wherever it's put into mass introduction. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, it's very connected to what we were saying about the corruption in the political system and the corruption that we now starting to see in parts of the judicial system, that they also all of these corruptions function together because corruption works like that. If, if, if you don't have, you know, corruption in the judicial and police and administrative and regulatory and political system, then in the end you won't be able to corrupt. You won't get corruption at all because if all of these are doing their jobs honestly and properly, especially the courts, then it's impossible for it to be concealed. And if it's not concealable and it's exposed, then of course the system essentially corrects it. And that's why corruption tends to spread. I mean, in Greece, where I used to live, well, I mean, where I come from, I mean, I, we, are, we are very, very familiar with this process. Now, can I ask you some about something else? Because there's been a huge amount of discussion and debate in the West, in Europe rather, about this battle in Congress about financial aid for Ukraine. Now, this comes directly back to the topic we've just been discussing because I got a very e interesting email from someone, and I don't know whether, whether this is true or not, but I just like your views. He said, one of the reasons Republicans are not willing to fund, send another $61 billion to Ukraine is because they know perfectly well that all of that money will go back as kickbacks to the Democrats and will be used in the election, the coming elections against the general election against the Republicans. Is there any truth of that at all, do you think? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's several things. One, that the populist momentum that we identified from the get-go of skepticism towards Ukraine was only going to grow. That the Ukraine war was not a war that would wear well in the American public, not one they really had much connection to or much concern with. And that all, as they saw, and that the political angle to attack it was the money being spent in support of it. That's the, that was the E, other than us not getting directly involved, even though, you know, by our definition of Iranian direct involvement, we've been directly involved in the Russian conflict. If, you know, tactical and strategic support, things like that as Russians with attitude 
comedically pointed out, uh, uh, sartorially put up, pointed out on uh, Twitter or X as it's now called. But the uh, the, the uh, it just got it was never popular, and more and more as as Americans ec- economically struggle and they see these massive checks being written to a complete waste of a war, there there isn't good answers anybody has when they come home, and they know that. Uh, and and so they know that this is a deep so this is just a deep state payoff, and are they more intimidated by the deep state of their own voters? And as it gets closer to election day, and as the as war fatigue grows, they they have less and, and as the economy struggles, they have less and less political uh, window of operation to keep funding these ludicrous conflicts and the uh, money that's just a total utter waste of cash. Like I think some of the 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 deep state crowd on the Republican side really believed that there was a deep Bushite base in the Republican Party. Reality is Bushism was a departure from Republican tradition. Uh, you know, Republican tradition, most people, uh, a lot of people don't know it, was anti-war. Uh, the, you know, the Republican administrations kept us out of war. You watch the old 1976 debate, the vice presidential debate to Walter Mondale and then Kansas Senator Bob Dole. And he said, well, if I could count up all the dead from all the Democrat wars, that was your middle American prairie republicanism. Democrats were the ones always Democrats, World War One, Democrats, World War Two, Democrats, Korean War, Democrats, Vietnam War. Uh, you know, Eisenhower keeping us out of war was the popular public perception. Nixon ending the Vietnam War was the popular public perception. Uh, Reagan keeping us out of war. Uh, the, yeah, I get there's all the arguments out there about what was going on underneath. But I'm just about the, the general public electorate, while they are very strong defense, they were not pro-war. Those two things didn't equal each other until the Bushes came along. And Poppy Bush propagated war after war, Panama and Iraq. Then W, of course, right back to Iraq. But let's throw in Afghanistan for kicks and giggles. And then the old neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party that goes back to the war whoring days of its origin back in business under uh, a case sporadically through with Clinton and then taken off a little more with Obama and then Biden's just taken it to its logical culmination. But this, this, you know, the, this eagerness for war is not a Republican tradition. And I think the deep state apparatus really thought it was and thought Nikki Haley would do well. Go back to one of those early Republican debates where they're all cheering more war for Ukraine. We must all support Ukraine. And then look at the one guy on the stage who understands what the Republican electorate actually wants. And that's the marketing guy, Vivek. Mm-hmm. And he's the one saying, why? Why? And like, that doesn't make any sense. That's mm-hmm. the dumbest thing in the world to do. So a hundred reasons why it's idiotic. And, and he starts calling him out. He's like, you know, Nikki Haley, you sit on Boeing. You know, the Boeing board, they paid you off not only for South Carolina, but really for your presidential campaign. It's obvious what you're doing. The uh, so and then calling out the others and what happened, all of them, Mike Pence had to drop out. Tim Scott had to drop out. These candidates running on these issues got absolutely nowhere. And I think they were truly shocked by it. They didn't realize, uh, you know, Chris Christie, same dynamic. There is no appetite for this. That was never really there. The Bushes had to use it by hook or by crook to establish it temporarily. And it was gone by 06. Once we had another failed war. I mean, it was really kind of gone in 92. Ross Perot was an anti-war candidate. People forget about that. He goes, can we all believe, can we all agree on one thing? No blood for oil. That was Ross Perot's slogan on war. Uh, the uh, And then George W. used 9-11 to temporarily rally support for what he was doing. 
it was gone by 06. Americans were done with it. It had nothing to do with Bushism or Bushitism or anything else. And what the Democratic Party forgot is the Democrats were done with it since LBJ and independent voters, like no mas on all the conflicts. And they just went full scale. And so the they know the it, uh, Ukraine aid is deeply unpopular. If we had a direct referendum, it would fail by 80 to 20 margins. So the only question for Republicans in the House and the Senate is how do they rationalize continuing to pimp out their position to the deep state? So that they, some have come up with, well, I'll require immigration reform, I'll require this, I'll require et cetera. Whereas J.D. Vance, Rand Paul are like, enough is enough. This is embarrassing. This is ludicrous. Uh, Paul said, look, we need an audit. Now we know why we need an audit. Look at everybody's being indicted related to obvious money laundering. That everybody, I mean, even the New York Times and other places are now writing in the West, uh, Ukraine's actually not going to gain back any property. Uh, you know, m- maybe it's time for some sort of resolution. Um, and they'll probably they'll probably continue to squeeze people, uh, you know, with some. I mean, I think these criminal indictments are targeted to squeeze certain people. That's what, I don't think they ought to suddenly care about all the money laundering that this whole thing was from day one. Uh, but politically, never popular. Now intensely unpopular. It's election cycle. Trump keeps saying, as soon as I'm elected, I'll solve Ukraine in a day. A day. Two phone calls. Boom, boom, day. And some people say, that sounds arrogant. Da, da, da. He just knows that uh, he tells Zelensky no more money and, uh, and and no other support. And you don't sign a deal, you're done. Yeah, the deal gets done. I mean, we'll see what Zelensky's really all about. I mean, I, I think he'll be on this on the on his first private charter plane to Miami or Hollywood and back in the reality TV world about the great, you know, Churchillian hero, uh, Zelensky. Uh, uh, but that war will finally end and maybe Ukraine will still have some male population left. Uh, but I mean, it's, if we would just cut off the spigot now, it will excel, accelerate the timetable for some deal. And frankly, the Biden administration would be better off with a deal than with this continuing embarrassment of this continuous conflict and money pouring out of a sieve to a money laundering operation to he and his Democratic pals. You are completely correct about that. Now, why don't they do it? Why don't they do it? I mean, it, it, it's a thing that baffles me. I mean, you've been following my programs, you know, our programs. You know, there was a period in the summer and, we, and the autumn where, you know, we thought that they were inching towards that point. There was a lot of talk about a freeze of the conflict, there was no way the Russians would ever agree to that. But anyway, there was talk about that. The Russians, probably at that time, less so now, I think, would have, if the if the US had approached them, they'd have said, all right, look, what, what, what are you offering? What are your ideas? And a deal could have been done, which would have preserved Ukraine and saved face for Biden and the administration. Why did they not do it? Is it because there's, you know, the, the deep state has such a hold on them, or is it because they're, you know, they're neocons there, or is it because there's an angry old man in the in the Oval Office who just won't uh, uh, agree to anything? Because, to be frank, that's what I sometimes wonder. Well, I think, you know, I, I also think that we're increasingly seeing, like, to your question earlier about, you know, why don't the courts wake up? Why don't some other people wake up about how bad this looks? You have people like Bill Barr saying, don't try to keep Trump off the ballot. He's the more uh, Kissinger-ish <coughs> element of the deep state apparatus domestically here. Thinks, okay, you should go this far, but not that far. 
Uh, that's why he really cleaned up Mueller because he understood Mueller was kind of an embarrassment to things that he was trying to protect the deep state, not actually expose it in, in shutting down Mueller. The, uh, but it, it, that Kissinger-esque uh, intelligence that's missing from our deep state apparatus, because uh, Biden is so much a robot and puppet that it's hard for me to imagine him being the primary source of resistance. Uh, my assumption is key actors in the deep state uh, still believe in it, you know, still believe it. I remember the way they described towards the end of Vietnam, where this guy's running around trying to get all the CIA guys and they're all busy uh, getting uh, massages in various uh, uh, salons in Vietnam. And he was like, this is how he was like, this is how disconnected it is. I mean, it was like, I mean, Graham Greene's idea for our man in Havana was based on his own lived experience, I think in Germany, uh, not Germany, but uh, somewhere in Africa, witnessing British intelligence. And he's like, this is all kind of a scam. This is like Jean Le Carre's Taylor of Panama, which is like his version of our man in, in, in Havana, about how scan, the, 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 these are semi-competent people who report just kind of bogus stuff. It's very much end of empire stuff, right? Like you read like the very last stages of a colonial operation, uh, particularly, you know, like parts of Africa with either the, the British, the Germans, the French or, or the, uh, the Belgians. And, and you see just incompetence, like not just malevolence, not just the lack of a moral compass, but just decisions that were, are counterproductive, decisions that were going to backfire on people. You know, a friend of mine's a history professor uh, on Cameroon and, you know, describes how when they went after certain tribal chieftains, that's what led to the political revolution that overturned him. And it was a very predictable thing. And yet they did it anyway, because they, they again, they lack both intelligence and a moral competence. And that's when you get World War One, right? I mean, that's yeah. what first, was like, yeah. how did these great empires think this was going to turn out so good? Yeah. And in the end of it, the Ottoman Empire around for centuries, gone in a decade. Austrian Empire around for centuries and the Habsburgs gone, I mean, through every version of face line after every uncle banged every niece known to man, you know, finally is gone. Uh, Russian Empire there for centuries, gone within a decade. Uh, and the German Empire, not the same. And the British Empire has never been the same. The empire where the sun never slept is now a, a place that's a marginal player in the political world. Uh, all because of tactical mistakes they made going into World War One. But the problem with that is that some of the tactical mistakes they made gave us the rise of fascism gave us the rise of communism, gave us World War II, gave us some of the most horrific events that have happened in, in human history uh, because of what it led to. Uh, but I, I get the same sense. I get that the, you know, the Biden administration is a wayward mm -hmm. compass, uh, misdirected areas. I mean, remember what you we were talking about uh, way back, you know, just a, was a year and a half ago, a year mm -hmm. ago where they were, you know, uh, uh, Jake was over there talking about how the Middle East has never been safer, <laughs> you know, and that was like three couple of weeks before everything. It's like you say that, and, and now we're looking at conflict in with maybe we go to war with Iran. Maybe we're going to war in Yemen. Maybe uh, we're, we're still in Jordan for whatever reason. We got troops all over the place, still in Syria, still in other places. Like, why are they there? Nobody can really explain it. The uh, In any place in the Middle East, I mean, it's, it's – it, it's just a disaster. The uh, And yet people don't seem to have restraint. And I think it's partially that Biden has this LBJ diminished mindset, uh, but LBJ mentality. I mean, LBJ also, I mean, LBJ should have got out of Vietnam. 
I mean, it was, yeah. you know, it was obvious. You know, he should have got a peace deal in the spring of 68, not try to wait for the summer of 68 or the fall of 68 when Nixon's people could probably help sabotage it to make sure Nixon could get elected. You know, that that's all on him. But it's like, how did he not see that? You had people chanting at it every day, LBJ, LBJ, how many babies did you kill today? Uh, still, you know, marching onward. Um, yeah, you could assassinate Robert Kennedy Sr., but you didn't resolve the problem. I mean, the problem was the issue that helped motivate his candidacy, which was primarily at that time the Vietnam War. And yet the Biden administration is just blind, blind on Ukraine, blind on uh, Iran, blind on the I mean, Biden himself says, man, we I got to get elected because Donald Trump will go to war with Iran. Uh, well, who's doing, going to war with Iran? Trump said no thank you to Milley's lunatic plans to go into Iran. And for mm. which, by the way, he's now being indicted in a federal court in Florida for telling somebody <laughs> he said no to invading Iran. Oh, that was disclosing national security information. What a bunch of hogwash. Mm. The, uh, and it's like, why? It's like one can totally politically disagree with, dislike, not you know, support the Iranian regime and not think uh, war is a good idea uh, in, the, in the Middle East. When does it ever mm. work out? I mean, has it literally ever worked out for the West? I mean, mm. you know, you could argue World War One parts of it, beating the Ottomans, okay. That, I mean, but otherwise, never. It's never worked. It all fails. And yet there we are again. We, you know, Afghanistan, a place where it never works. Vietnam, my God, Vietnam beat Genghis Khan twice. I mean, they beat the Mongols twice. I mean, you're going to go. But we keep making this mistakes again and again and again and again. And we're just seeing it at scale. And this is what happens when dangerously incompetent people are in control of the levers of power. This is exactly true. I mean, we've been, we've been talking again about this on the Duran. We've been saying, we've been talking about the Middle East. The thing about this crisis, the one we're in now, is it was completely foreseeable. Everybody could see that it would come. If it's something is foreseeable, it can be prevented. But of course, they did all the wrong things. It's almost as if they wanted to do the wrong things. I mean, they said something like a quarter of the American fleet floating around the Middle East doing what exactly? Escorting a few ships, merchant ships. But of course, that's not what the American fleet is designed to do. And it can't really protect the merchant ships from uh, Houthi missiles because, as I said, that's not what it's designed for. So, I mean, what were they thinking? How did they think it could turn out otherwise? And now we're on the in the brink of another war, another war in the Middle East, even as we've got this war in Ukraine, which, because it's a proxy war, remember, we are losing. And let's say we, we in Britain, bear an immense share of responsibility for that. And you're absolutely right. We are a marginal player. And the sooner we understand that in Britain, the better for us and the world it will be. Because what we're doing by trying to ride on America and manipulate the Americans in order to get into these new quarrels, which don't really concern the United States. I mean, why does the United States care about Crimea? You know, refighting the Crimean War of 1854 all over again, getting the Americans to, to, to do, get, get involved on with us on that. Well, the sooner we stop doing these things and the sooner the Americans tell us, Go away. We're not listening to you anymore. The better for us it will be. We can then start to concentrate in Britain on our very real, very pressing 
and urgent domestic problems which are going unresolved. Anyway, there we go. This is all I'm. This is where I'm going to stop, uh, uh, um, uh, Robert. That was a brilliant program. I'm going to hand over to Alex. He's probably got some questions, and um, well, we'll see where we go. I think we have five minutes for some questions, yeah. Robert. Right? Sounds good. Yeah, five minutes. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's let's do a couple of questions, which only you can answer. So let's start with. Rumble, please ask Barnes, can Texas use the invasion as a reason to secede from the U.S.? I don't think they would uh, secede. Uh, the The ability to secede kind of resolved by the Civil War, however one interprets it. There, you know, there was the old constitutional argument for it, but effectively now I think that's moot. And then Texas is so integrated into the national economy, I think legal secession is very unlikely. Now, you might have simply Texas doing its own thing when it comes to immigration. So you might have what some would call de facto secession on immigration policy. But I don't think you'll see any legal secession effort at this time. Sanjeva asks, Robert, do you think Michelle Obama replacing Biden will change the equation? I don't think there's any. The reason why Biden is still the choice, despite his unpopularity, is every other alternative is more unpopular. So the and Michelle Obama hates people. There's no other way to put it. The uh, and she didn't work this hard to cash in. She likes this nice life, the homes on the beach in Manhattan and and I mean in New York and in Massachusetts and in Hawaii and wherever their next new one is. You know, hanging out at Richard Branson's island. Uh, you know, getting to do book tours, which she gets lots of praise, getting to do little fake TV movie series. Uh, she's the great Michelle Obama cashing in big time. Uh, she's not going to give up any of that for dealing with the ordinary plebes of America. Uh, so she hated politics in general. She has a kind of a contempt for ordinary people. Uh, and so the it's it, a lot of people see her as some sort of savior. She's kind of like when they kept saying, would Oprah run? Uh, there's there's really uh, very little to no chance of either one of them, and they're stuck with Biden because everybody else is. The Biden has some appeal amongst older blue collar Democrats in the north, in the middle middle of the country. Uh, those voters don't like anyone but him, so that's why they're kind of stuck with Biden. All right, we'll do a couple of more and wrap it up from Dinapong. Robert, can you explain the concept of nullification and how it relates to what is transpiring in Texas? So the, the sanctuary city policy is a little bit differently because there it's commandering. And so you can't be required as the state government to participate. Some of that's mislabeled nullification. Uh, but what that really is, is you cannot be required to do the federal government's business. Preemption is the opposite side of that. That's where the federal government can preempt and prohibit the state from doing the federal government's business, as has been interpreted. And, and, thus, and so nullification is, in those contexts, uh, you can, the state can effectively negate the law by not enforcing it themselves under anti-commandering principles, but they can't negate the administration's priorities uh, by uh, getting involved in an area that courts have decided the feds have preemption. All right, let's see here. How can the president federalize the National Guard if they are constitutionally state and federal already on duty for their state wouldn't that be a power grab of the military yeah that it there's a lot of legal problems with any effort to in this context 
for Biden to try to assert control over the National Guard in Texas concerning immigration. And the so uh, he could try. And then the question is, what would the National Guard do? Uh, what would otherwise be ordered? Because the National Guard just chooses not to obey Biden, believe that he doesn't have their legal authority. What exactly does Biden do? Uh, so I don't know if he'll even test that. Uh, it, we'll see how much he's willing to escalate. But that that is his legal authority there is not as clear as his people have tried to suggest it is. But the practical limitations are the big ones. All right. And from Soapy Ork, question for Duran and Robert Barnes. Is there any real hope that a new Trump presidency can excise the, mal the malignant U.S. neocon Wolfowitz doctrine, which is eroding uh, the U.S.'s position globally? I would hope sector. so. I mean, there I would I would follow if you want some direction of where Trump is heading, follow where Donald Trump Jr. is. So Donald Trump Jr. has been more aggressive about criticizing deep state, neocon efforts, warmongering efforts. You know, Nikki Haley's candidacy has been a useful foil in that sense. It's reminded Trump of who his opponents really are and that it is that operation. So I think his first term, he tried to he tried to work within the deep state, tried to work with the Republican establishment. And all they did was screw him over. You know, the everybody, you know, the teller, almost all of his cabinet appointees backfired and backstabbed him. Uh, the uh, clearly the case with Bolton, uh, the case with many others. I think it is highly unlikely you will see those people uh, in positions of power in a second Trump administration. How good will he get to? That's an open question. You know, the hope is that Trump will go much further than he did in the first term. He'll go further at defanging the deep state. Whether he goes far enough is yet to be determined, but they keep educating him by how they're trying to destroy him. And one last question. Robert, what's your opinion of Alina Abba? Do you think she's good for Trump's legal team? You know, pretty good PR. Um, I would say that it reflects a certain preference Trump has. Uh, Trump has a look, you know, the old lookism bias uh, that he, he always has. The uh, It's like the thing that stopped him for a long time for letting Bolton get anywhere near positions of power was not Bolton's general insanity, but he didn't like his mustache. Uh, so, you know, that, that's just, Trump still has that. And, uh, Lena Haba, Trump thinks, ah, you know, uh, someone who looks good, looks good for me kind of logic. Uh, I think she's a solid lawyer. Um, the, and I think he's done a solid job for him in the court of public opinion. The, uh, I think there are some cases where some of his other lawyers could, could do better. Uh, but I'm not sure that's why he picked her to be blunt. What mm -hmm. one more. Are, are the yeah. elites worried about populist revolts? That's what Davos was all about. Uh, you know, the, uh, they even invited Millet, saying, you know, may, may, maybe calm down, Millet. You know, you don't have to keep talking about how central bankers bad. Well, let's reconsider all of this now. And he you know, goes there and gives his Putin-esque speech. I mean, I recommend people go back to the Putin speech where he basically told him, eh, I'm not going your way, by the way. the uh, That might have been the beginning. He knew that was the beginning of the throwdown, but uh, they're absolutely paranoid. That's why they're trying to ban the AFD in Germany. That's why they're trying to suppress any form of organic democracy in Europe. That's why they're trying to negate the effects of Brexit in the UK. Uh, that's why you know they've co-opted both parties in, in the UK. So where Brits have no choice, uh, no real choices. That's why they're harassing Orban again when he's like, no more deal with Hungary. Uh, they're not going to like the Slovakian uh, prime minister. 
uh, doing his uh, farming inquiry. I'm sure that the EU is trying to hush hush, given some other payments might have been involved there. So uh, the yeah, they are terrified of the and then you have populist rebellions in Latin America, Africa, and Asia of different varieties, uh, left or right, whether it's El Salvador, uh, Ar uh, Argentina, what is probably going to come back to form in Brazil. Uh, you know, the, the populism is here to stay and that they're doing everything to keep it at bay. Uh, but I don't think ultimately their efforts will succeed. I think uh, ordinary people's efforts will break through and we'll have a more peaceful, more prosperous, more humane world. Uh, that may be, you know, Bobby Kennedy whispering in my ear, tell, the uh, uh, saying that this is possible. Uh, but the only way it ever happens is to believe it is possible. VivaBarnsLaw.Locals.com, the best locals channel out there. The link is in the description box down below. I will also have it as a pinned comment. The great Robert Barnes, thank you very much. Alexander, Robert, any final thoughts? And we are signing out for the right. evening or the morning, depending on where you are. Oh, what, what, what enormous ground we've covered, actually. This has been a fantastic show. Uh, apologies for my slightly croaky voice, but um, Robert, absolutely scintillating as always brilliant to have you on robert and thanks thanks again yeah. always a privilege take care everybody <laughs>